I can feel the line drawn to mark time between two distinct eras, pre-internet and post-internet. As much as I thought I was growing up in the modern world when I was a kid, it now seems almost prehistoric when one jogs their memory banks back barely a dozen years ago. It was a world when payphones adorned the city sidewalks. Compact discs had phased out vinyl and cassettes. You went to arcades to play the latest video games, and encyclopedias were found on every bookshelf in every home, and every home had bookshelves. At the risk of sounding like a codger, when it comes to music, I honestly look at the new generation with envy. Finding out about bands used to be an almost impossible task. It was a process that resembled groping in the dark, almost literally, rolling the radio dial late at night, under the covers, until you stumble on a college radio show playing heavy, aggressive music, or someone's older sibling made a tape and you borrowed it, or finding a magazine randomly stocked on a magazine stand and reading about the bands you thought looked cool. When you would finally find a Black Flag or a Dead Kennedys or a Suicidal Tendencies, you'd cough up your allowance or weekend job money and roll the dice. Without internet access, one relied more on one's eyes to help make the correct music purchase. You needed a superior cover to lure unsuspecting fans like me, and there were some pretty cool covers that still stand the test of time, too. I think about COC's Animosity, DRI's Crossover, Sam Hain's Initium, Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast, Kiss's Rock and Roll Over, Metallica's Kill 'Em All, and Black Flag's My War as some of the greatest covers of all time, and all of them burned into my psyche. Add Hyrax's debut, Raging Violence, on that list. Incredible pushead cover artwork, Metal Blade Records verification, the screaming wail of the one and only Caton DePena, and you have me in line waiting to enlist in their army. However, it was Caton's post-Hyrax band, Phantasm, that turned me on to Caton and Hyrax in the first place. Again, reading about it in an old underground metal magazine. Seeing a photo of Caton with ex-Metallica bassist Ron McGovney in their then-new band, Phantasm, piqued my interest, and I had to find out more about Caton DePena. The funny thing is, as much as I got into Hyrax, I never even ended up hearing Phantasm. The band never took off, and I was only able to hear about them when someone out there uploaded their demo onto YouTube years, years later. It was quite interesting to listen to after all the time spent wondering. And this is a direct example of how it used to be. Having a voracious appetite to hear everything, but without internet access or money, desires were left unfulfilled. I'm constantly playing a game of catch-up to this day, searching for bands and records that I had only read about in magazines but didn't have enough money to hear them. It, it's become somewhat of a new hobby of mine now. After 14 years of stasis, Hyrax emerged from the ooze to cough up the 2000 EP El Diablo Negro, followed by another EP the following year called Barrage of Noise, until 2004's official return with the new Age of Terror. Since then, the band have more than made up for lost time, touring, releasing albums, and more touring. Their last album, 2014's Immortal Legacy, out on SPV Records, 
is arguably the best Hyrax record to date. Well, as much as it can sometimes be a shit stain on humanity, social media can yield some great outcomes. When I find people like Caton online, someone I've looked up to for years, and I send out a missive into the ether, only to have it replied to with such positive affirmation, it reminds me of why I do this rock and roll thing and how it can sometimes be pretty fucking cool. So, of course, I had to get Caton on the podcast. And this is the ultimate way to meet someone, being able to spend upwards to an hour with the man himself, talking Hyrax, talking metal, talking Motorhead. I'm so glad this happened, and I'm very honored to have Kate and DePena on the podcast. It's somewhat of another feather in my cap. I want to thank Blue Mike Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for supporting the podcast. I want to thank Chino Locos Restaurants for making fish burritos stuffed with chow mein noodles. And thank you for listening to this episode. Maybe you already subscribe, but if you don't, please do. It's free. It's free to subscribe. It's free to download on iTunes or SoundCloud. Anyways, here's Kate DePena of Hyrax. He's this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. They play the kid as Danko's crew of Dello for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes get me in from fucked up. Stop playing hangs out. What? What did you just say to me? You don't want to listen to the Danko Jones podcast. Well, fuck you, my man. You want me to take my fist and shove it up your ass? Cause I will. Don't you dare say that shit about Denko Jones. Man, his podcast is the best in the whole world. Did you hear me? The best podcast in the whole fucking world. Listen to the Denko Jones podcast. Listen to the Denko Jones podcast. Disco and rock and roll aren't supposed to mix. And we all know how great a rock guitarist Danko is. But when I accompanied him one night to a disco nightclub, I watched in awe as Danko tore up the dance floor. He was like Danny Terrio, John Travolta, and Adrian Zemed all rolled into one. When he was finished dancing, the music stopped and everyone applauded. The two of us immediately left the club and ended up in a blues bar where I watched Danko jam on CCR and Chuck Berry covers till dawn. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready because the Danko Jones podcast starts. Hey, Katen. Yeah. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. First of all, it is a 
um, it's an honor to, to be talking to you right now. Um, I, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> I, I can't believe this is happening. One of the reasons why I do this podcast is, is to, to, to have an excuse to, to talk to, you know, people that I, I, you know, I've been listening to, I look up to for years and, and you're one of them. So, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. Well, thanks for having me, man. You know, it's, the feeling's mutual. I know you've been doing music for a long time as well, and it's it's always nice to talk to other musicians and kind of get their their take on what's going on in the music scene, you know? So, like I said, the fe- feeling's mutual, and it's all about music, man. That's the most important thing. It makes makes everything a lot funner having music involved, you know? Well, um, I just, I wanted to talk to you about a few things. Um, uh, I didn't want to rehash what you might have probably said ad nauseum in other interviews, but um, it's 2016 now. Uh, Immortal Legacy uh, is is uh, getting on, you know, its second year. It, what what are the plans for Hyrax? The immediate future plans? Well, you know, we came back from two. Uh, we did two tours of Europe in one year, and and uh, it was really rough on us because you know we weren't used to going out for so long. Uh, the record label, which you know they're great, but they you know they're not they're not on on the tour bus or in the tour van, you know, so they don't realize a lot of times you're out there touring and you're tired and you're doing. You know, we did like. 23 shows in 24 days we did two of those tours you know and that's really rough uh so we came off the road we needed a break but you know the the record had been doing well especially in europe that's where the label's from germany and uh, it's spv yeah yeah yeah, spv and and it's great working with them but like i said we kind of needed to recharge our batteries and come home for a little bit and that also gets you, you know, back into the mood of writing. So, you know, we started writing. We've got like four songs already completed for the next album. Amazing. Uh, but, you know, we still like with, with a band like us, usually a record, even if it's after two years, a lot of people are still catching on to us because we're still an underground band, which we're actually really proud of. You know, we never got into this business to make it overnight. I mean, that's fine for some bands that maybe they do a one record and they're huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's good for them. But for us, it's always been about paving a new way and just trying to uh, stay rooted in what got us to where we're at anyways, because if it wasn't for the underground, high rats would be nothing anyways. And that's a fact. I'm not just saying that. So we never want to lose our grassroots fan base. So we, we put out these records and, and hopefully more people spread the word, you know, whether it's word of mouth or through the social media networks, you know, it's for us. It's just a matter of staying true to what we, we you know, we've been doing for so long. You know, we're never going to change what we do because we know the people that buy high racks records. That's what they expect, and we don't want to let them down. So now it's just a matter of writing, and we'll, you know, we'll get back to touring. We've got some high-profile gigs coming up, like the, the Maryland Death Festival coming up in May, and then we're doing a, a one-off show with DRI in San Francisco. So, you know, we, we still keep busy, but we, we definitely need to write a new record. And that's kind of the process that we're in right now is writing the next album. When you say, when I hear a singer say 23 shows in 24 days, um, I, uh, I start to cringe because yeah. as a singer myself, playing high volume, high intensity music like, you know, Hyrax does and like we do, 
what a lot of people, even within the band sometimes, overlook is the stress that it takes on the singer, the toll that it takes on a singer's vocal cords. A guitarist can play with a fever, with a flu, yeah. but yeah. a singer, and a lot of, and how many people sing? So how many people know this experience? So when I hear you say 23 and 24, and I know how you sing, I know your register. Yeah. How do you do that on the road? What is the regiment that you follow if there is one? Mine's a lot more stricter than than the rest of the band, also because, as you know, being a front man of a band like this is that you don't you're not just singing; you're also doing all the interviews every yeah. day and and getting up early when you have gone to bed really late. So it's it's it, like you said, it's way stressful on on your whole body. Um, but I just try to get more sleep. I'm I'm one of the people that goes to bed whenever I can, and I you know try to sleep in as long as I can and and drink a lot of water and, you know, rest is probably the most important thing besides trying to eat well, which isn't easy on the road because some of the countries you go through, mm -hmm. you know, you, you're not able to find food that fast that's healthy. So you're usually eating a lot of food that's not healthy. So, you know, a lot of sleep and water if I can get it and if I can find some good food. Um, and I try to not drink too much, even though I'm a, I'm a beer drinker and stuff. But, you know, you got to kind of taper that stuff back. I usually near the end of tours is when I'll party a little bit, but the beginning of the tour, I'm pretty much not doing anything like that. Just trying to rest my throat because like you said, we, we play pretty intense music. And when you play like that every night, you know, we don't go out there half ass every night we give our best. And, uh, you know, we're coming off the tours. A lot of us end up going to therapy, like, you know, neck therapy, going yep. to the, you know, stuff like that. So it's a lot of stuff that the fans don't know. They don't realize like every night you're out there, you might look like you're, you know, you're fresh and brand new, but you've been on a tour bus where there's not really, you know, places to go get laundry done. I mean, just this, a lot of the stuff that fans don't know about, if they knew they'd be pretty surprised. So it's just a tough thing, but you know, I, I, at the same time, I feel fortunate that I'm lucky enough to play music and get to travel around the world. That's, for me, the best is meeting the fans and going on the road. Another thing about you that's different than me is, you know, I have a guitar. So to a certain extent, it keeps me m still and, um, you know, locked next to a mic stand. Whereas yeah. you as a frontman, and I've seen it where you you got to move. You're moving. You're, you're There's a lot more physical physicality with your performance than you know, a singer in my position with a guitar strapped around his, his, his body. Yeah. You know how it is too. Like the stages get bigger in some of the countries. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more work involved in running around and stuff. But, uh, you know, I just enjoy it still. Like even at age 53, I'm still very much into it. And, um, you know, it's, I feel fortunate, you know, so, you know, until, uh, until that day comes, I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. You know, I, I've had plenty of musicians that I look up to as well that have inspired me. And I've always been in the musicians that were down to earth. I think that's probably kind of my thing, too. Like, I, you know, I grew up on guys like Phil Lynott and Bon Scott. So, you know, the, that's kind of what I believe in, just being pretty accessible, you know, to the fans and to anybody that's in, interested in what we do. You know, we get people all the time that write to us. And they're surprised that we write back, but that's just the way we came up and we're always going to be doing that. We've been doing that since 1984, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. I think when I contacted you about doing the podcast, I, I, um, 
it was about maybe it was a month ago now a few yeah. weeks back and now some time has passed but i wanted to get your uh thoughts and maybe memories of uh lemmy killmeister because lemmy's recent passing and i know you've uploaded uh several times pics of you and lemmy and all that stuff and and um you know you mentioned musicians that you look up to what are some of the memories uh, that you have of lemmy well, he's definitely one of the guys I look up to for sure. Um, I saw them like 1981. They did a tour with Blizzard of Oz, which back then is what Ozzy's band was called. Yeah. And uh, I've always been a fan, like even before that, because, you know, I had friends that we were all in it. We were total record collector nerds. I still am. I mean, I'm I'm proud to say that, actually. But, you know, we would collect, you know, Motorhead and all these, you know, the beginning of the British New Wave of Metal and it was uh, we used to hang out at this house in Norwalk, which was us and the guys from Metallica. So it'd be like James Hetfield and me and a few other people. We would go to the same record store called Middle Earth that was in Downey, California, and that's where we got all these imports. So we bought most of our Motorhead records there. And uh, you know, so they, already I was very much into the band. But then I finally got to see them and meet Lemmy, and uh, it changed my whole perception of the band because. That was one of the guys, Lemmy was one of those people that was always pretty accessible for his fans. And that affected me. And then meeting him, he was so nice, which was kind of the opposite of what I thought he would be. Because, you know, you, you see all the pictures and you hear all the stories. But he was like the nicest person, musician, especially at the level he was at. So that always inspired me, you know, just the way he was. And then, you know, recently when he passed... Um, I've been also DJing. I do DJ music when I'm not on the road. I do a lot of heavy metal stuff in bars. Right. And uh, one of the bars I, I work at is the Rainbow Bar and Grill in Hollywood. So I kind of came up with an idea to do a, a statue for him just because I'm a huge fan. But I didn't realize that it would take off and then I would be in charge of raising the money to get this statue done. But it ended up happening and I... Uh, got it done you know so there's you know for me it was like paying back a musician who had done a lot for me you know whether you know he didn't know me as well as you know his closest friends but i had seen him around and met him and that just always touched me so i felt like i had to give back um he's one of those guys that also if you think about his career he did a lot in 70 years of being around on this planet that guy did more than most people will do in five lifetimes Absolutely. So just, yeah, I'm a big fan and, you know, I, I think anybody who really does love Motorhead, they'll understand where I'm coming from. It just, to me, I felt like at all the times I've been at parties and listened to Motorhead personally in my own house that I kind of needed to give something back. So that's just the way I feel like if I'm down with somebody, I will do whatever it takes to support them. And that's the way I've been about Motorhead for, you know, many years now. So you were in charge of that statue. Yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't originally want to get involved like that, but it was just something where I felt this guy deserves a statue. I mean, uh, Rory Gallagher's got one, Bon Scott's got one, and obviously Ronnie James Dio's got one. And I think there's a maybe another few people that have them, but not many there's musicians. There's a Phil one in Dublin. Phil, Lyon, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that one's awesome, you know, so... That's kind of where I got the idea. I thought about Phil Lynott's statue, and, and like I said, Bon Scott's got one too, so mm. why shouldn't Lemmy have one? But I, I made the this mistake of posting it on my Facebook page, and then all these people were like, you need to start a petition, 
And I started this petition, and it got like over 8,000 signatures really fast. And then I got a phone call from the Rainbow, and they're like, hey, you started this thing, man. You need to finish it. So that's basically and, – and also the fans. Like so many Motorhead fans had written to me, and you know some of the stories they told me, like they, they were donating money they didn't even have because they really wanted this statue done. I, one guy told me he emptied out the rest of his bank account and gave that money towards the statue. There's many stories like that. Like I've seen all the letters – all the people that have written, and uh, it's going to be a reality. Right now, the statue's being made in um, Utah, and it'll be shipped. They're going to actually have the, the company that's building it. They're going to hand-deliver hand it. They're going to ship it out here in a truck, and they're going to deliver it to the Rainbow Bar and Grill in Hollywood. So it's it's already paid for. We raised tw over $20,000 in Lemmy's name to do the statue. The fans did it like... There were no huge rock star donations. It was all done by Motorhead fans. So it's something that they should be so proud of. You know? Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea. I knew I'd heard of the statue, um, you know, but I, I I didn't know that you were behind that and that it was actually it's actually going to see ha happen. Yeah, it's it's right, right now it's being made. It's being um, I guess they call it casted where they put it in a big cast. Mm -hmm. And I've seen all the, you know, what it's going to look like. And it's amazing. It's a six foot statue of Lemmy, total life size um, to the detail. Like, I mean, we went over everything, even the back, <laughs> of it, the back of his pants. I mean, every little detail, his nose, we went over everything. So what is it's the, in the, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. what's the, uh, what's the era of Lemmy? Like what, what year? Cause his, yeah, his career is, you know, decades old. What, yeah. What it, Lemmy are, are we talking about? Well, that was the toughest thing because the fans, I mean, they were, they're Motorhead fans, so they're very vocal. Like, even doing this thing, I felt so much pressure doing it because I'm a Motorhead fan and I know how they think. And I knew I couldn't screw this up. We're talking <laughs> about a lot of people's money and, and some of them weren't rich, so they gave their last, you know, dollar to do this. Yeah. Um, but it's a little bit later on in his career. I mean, like I said, we had so many, you know, people with ideas and I mean, obviously I think most people wanted it to be like almost stage-like where he had the microphone tilted down and, uh, his Rickenbacker, but we couldn't get that, that detail because it would just make the, the statue that, that much tougher to make. Right. So it's a little bit later on, um, even after this podcast, I can send you a photo if you want to post it, but I have the official photo that they're using. But he looks very cool, and it's just him standing there. And, you know, the stuff that he used to wear so much, because he always had these costumes that he used to like wearing. Yeah. And uh, he's dressed really cool. So I think the fans are going to love it. And even where they're doing it at the Rainbow, they're, they're actually demolitioning a wall that they're going to knock out to put this statue in. They're, they're really doing it, I mean really nice for him because it was basically his second home. I mean, he was at that bar a lot. Yeah. You I know, mean, so it's, it's actually in the same room where he used to sit all the time and play his video games. Yeah. I was going to ask you if they were going to put it in, in that area. Yeah. It's right there. It's a little bit further back because they're, they're going to put it into the wall, which I think is a smart idea. Right. Yeah. And, uh, they've, they've gone over it with me on every detail because I was crazy enough to start this thing. But like I said, I still give most of the credit to the fans. Or I should say all the credit to the fans because they, they banded together. And I, and I was expecting, you know, some of his friends that were rock stars to help out, but we didn't hear from one of them. But it, it still didn't matter because the fans were so into it, they took care of it. Wow, that's amazing. I, 
I, I, I had no idea because I think in one of my emails to you, I'm like, yeah, we could talk. Let's talk about Motorhead and Lemmy and, and just what you got. But I had no idea that you had spearheaded this this whole project. That's amazing. I, I, I just felt like it was something I needed to do. And I think anybody, if they would have thought of it before I did, you know, they would have probably ran with it, too. I just I don't know. I just really care about him. Like, it's it's funny because um I think what it is when you're a musician and you see a guy like him who did almost most of his life touring and in the most brutal way, like, you know, mm-hmm. what we do is brutal, but Motorhead, you know, set the, the bar for brutality when it comes to, you know, loud and heavy music. So um, it's just, for me, it's an honor to be a part of it. And they're even, I mean, they, they put so much thought into this thing after we got it rolling that there's even going to be a big plaque that goes beside the statue that has all the names of the fans that donated money. Wow. So it's like, it's really cool that like his fans, you know, that just shows you how much they loved him because so many people got behind it and we didn't really advertise and say all these things. You know, we just put it out there for the fans if they were into it and they got right behind it. I mean, there were guys that sent money from every corner of the planet and just how they did it. And with so much love, I mean, we had people sending it from the poorest countries where like if it was even a dollar sixty three for them it was like twenty dollars if they sent it from somewhere like Venezuela, so I mean it was just to see all the love that he has his fans was pretty impressive. I mean I actually got I teared up reading some of the letters from some of the fans. You know, it was unbelievable. Yeah, I think you know when Lemmy did pass, uh, it did affect me. Surprised me that it affected me as much as it did. Um, because once he passed, everybody, you know, was uh, had a Lemmy story. Everybody was posting all this stuff. And I saw videos of Lemmy that I hadn't seen before. Um, and uh, it just, for me, it hit me home that here's a guy who, like you said, looks really menacing. Like he looks like yeah. he's going to tear your head apart if you say the wrong thing. Yeah. Dangerous, really dangerous, um, personified. And then, you know, if you meet him, if you had gotten the chance to meet him and even hang out with him, he walks away. You walk away thinking Lemmy is a gentleman, like he's a gentleman at the end of the day. And I thought that was something that impressed me the most about Lemmy. And before I met Lemmy, I had heard about this, about him. And in the story that that's like was passed on to me was uh, Getty Lee of Rush had invited Lemmy to his house. I guess Motorhead were in town or something because, you know, Rush are from Toronto. I'm from Toronto. Yeah. And uh, Getty Lee, this is how the story goes. So I, I can't verify. But Getty Lee's wife was dead against it when she heard it was <laughs> that guy coming to their house. She just she had she didn't want anything. She didn't want him in the house. And then came over for dinner and he charmed, he charmed her and she, wow. she loved him, you know, like, so, I mean, I heard that story before I met Lemmy. And then when I finally met him, he's a very charismatic man to look at. But then when you talk to him, it's like 10 times that. Yeah. He's amazing. And you know, what's even more bizarre now, and I'm not just saying this, but working at the rainbow bar and grill for me now is even more, uh, not eerie in a bad way, but it's eerie in a really good way. Because whenever I walk back into the building, you can totally feel his presence. Even when you drive up to the building now, it's almost like 
his spirits in the room. I'm not kidding you. And in the where I first met him was at the Rainbow, and I met him in the room where I spin music at night. It's upstairs, and and so every time I walk in the room, I can't help but think of him right when I get there. So, you know, in a, in a really good positive way, let me spirits alive at that club, and and I think what's going to be good about it once the statue's there, it'll just be. Like he's he's come home, you know. So, and and the other thing that a lot of people don't realize about all the Motorhead fans, it's almost like everybody had to band together to kind of, I don't know, uh, console each other. Because even though we knew he wasn't going to live forever, even though we wanted him to live forever, uh, it still came as a really sad, sad, shocking surprise when he did when they announced it because. We still didn't see it coming because you've always thought of Lemmy as being there forever because he's been, you know, every summertime he's doing all the major festivals. Every year he's touring a big portion of the year. So you just think you're going to see Motorhead and Lemmy forever. So unfortunately, that you know, that's not the case anymore. But for the other thing about the statue, which I think is really important, it also gives people a place to go mourn. Like if they want to go there just to pay their respects, that's that's the thing I think that's really cool about that statue. Yeah, it's it's a good point that you make how we all thought, well, e- even behind the scenes and, and knowing, you know, a lot of the people behind the scenes in the Motorhead camp, you know, we had heard we had heard that, you know, his health wasn't the best. And so yeah. it wasn't a surprise. But when it did happen, it still was a surprise. Yeah, for sure. And I and I, th- I think that people are still kind of in shock, you know. It's like you still don't want to totally accept it even though you know what has happened. And then to make it even crazier, then David Bowie passes and it's just like what the hell's going on? <laughs> yeah, that like, yeah. He's another guy who actually lived um a way healthier lifestyle than Lemmy. So when he passed like it's almost like is this rock and roll Armageddon? But I think at the same time, it makes anybody that's still around that's been doing this for a long time realize you got to enjoy the music while you can because you just never know. I mean, even as you've seen touring, it's it's actually dangerous touring, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, you just got to live every day like it's your last. That's what that's what I believe. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. But you know, Caton, now when people go to the Rainbow. Uh, because when, when I'd go to the rainbow, it was like, Oh, is, is Lemmy going to be here tonight? That's what people would say to each other. But now it's like, is Caton going to be there tonight? Is he spinning (laughs) records? It's, it's pretty crazy. Like I, I went in there just, um, this is what's funny back to the social media thing. The rainbow had contacted me through Instagram and, and said, Hey, are you interested in DJing here? And I was like, sure. Especially when I'm not touring, it's like the best gig for a musician to go play music and and also i always felt like music was about you know kind of paying it forward and giving back like a lot of kids don't have as much experience as guys like me and you so whenever i get a chance to dj and like even i'll I'll extend this invitation to you next time you're in town if you're if our schedules work out you're more than welcome to come up and spend some music with me at the rainbow i'm taking you up on that now there, there you go. But I think I think it's cool to kind of turn people on to something like I'm sure there's some Canadian bands that you know about that I don't know about, you know. And, and same with me, there's certain you know California bands that people don't know about. Like, so I always like to play, you know, I'll play the, the stuff that they want to hear also, but I'll throw in some tracks of stuff they've never heard before, you know. So that's that's what I like about doing that. But it's it's been a really amazing experience because people will come in 
that don't know I'm DJing there and they'll turn around and go, what the hell? You know, they can't believe I'm spinning music there. So it's a fun thing, though. It's, it's, it's Hollywood. It's a whole different world, you know? Yeah, yeah. I can only imagine. I mean, you you know, we've been there. Uh, you know, you, you, you hang around L.A. long enough and, uh, you know, as a Canadian and eventually someone you're familiar with will walk by you. Yeah. But, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's more, um, more of an impact when it's someone from the music world, especially in the heavy music for me in the heavy music world. So, I mean, if I was to walk in the rainbow and you would be spinning records and we hadn't even done this podcast, I think I would be, uh, I would just sit in a corner and listen and then I'll leave and then I'll tweet that I was there to you. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, you know, it's been fun because I, I did a, a set there during NAM, and a lot of metal musicians came in not knowing that I'd be spinning music, and I was kind of hidden in the corner when I was doing it. But the thing that was cool is I kind of spin like a musician because I am one, but they couldn't believe the stuff I was playing. So there were guys coming up, and then they go, oh, it's you. But the, I'd be like, you guys are guitar players. You guys should know Gary Moore. You know, they were asking me, who is this? And, you know, just so I like to play some stuff that they might not hear all the time. But it's it's definitely fun to do that because I like playing for fans and musicians. And musicians are always really interested in like what period of time some of these records are from and who produced it and all that stuff. So I just like the whole vibe of talking about music by playing it for people, you know. Well, you, you, you yourself said earlier on that you're a, you know, kind of a record collector and, you know, you yes. go deep. and I've seen your posts and stuff and it seems that you go real deep with music. Um, I wanted to bring up this thing from back in the nineties. I helped a friend of mine put out a seven inch, um, by a band called Flag Camp. They and, were awesome. And he, my friend Ken put out the seven inch, um, and He's a big metal head like I am. And he, he one day came up to me and he goes, you're not going to believe who wants to buy the seven inch for his store. Caton from Hyrax. I was like, what? what? That seven inch was, was great, man. It's like for me, um, if it doesn't matter where the records are at. I will dig them out and find them or find the people that are making them because that's what I believe in. Like that was an obscure seven inch at yeah. the time. And I remember working at this store called Zed Records in Long Beach. And that was kind of our, our mission was no matter where these records were at, if they were good, we would seek them out. So I didn't know you were part of that, too. I, didn't, I had no idea. But that was a really good single. And uh, I believe we sold quite a few of them through that record store, too. It wasn't my label. It was my friend Ken's. But, you know, in doing I love that band so much. And when Ken was going to put out the seven inch, I just said, Hey, uh, Ken and my other friend, Matt, I said, Hey guys, here's, here's some money. I don't have a lot of money, but I'd love to just participate in, in just putting out this amazing band from our city. That's a, that's an awesome story. And that shows you how small the world really is, you know? Yeah. So when I was leading up to this, I texted Ken and I go, I'm going to talk, I'm going to bring up flight camp with Kate and see, that's see where amazing. that goes. That's amazing. No, that was really good stuff. I mean, that's that's kind of even where I got more into it, working at stores. You know, like, it's awesome being a musician, but there's no better place to have your ear to the grindstone than working at, you know, independent record stores. And I was fortunate enough that I worked at Zed Records, which was a really 
great store and, and I worked at another one that was in Huntington Beach later on called Vinyl Solution. So, you know, those stores, man, that's really where it's at. Like you learn and you get to hear bands that you would never hear any other way. So that's a great story. Thanks for bringing that up and tell him that I love the record still to this day. And that, that just blows me away that you guys were, are involved in that. That's awesome. Well, Caton, after this podcast, I can send you, because he ended up putting out um, a compilation of all their singles. Wow. I could send you like um, like a like a JPEG or a Dropbox or any That's kind of perfect. link for, for all their stuff because they were one of those bands that I was like, this band is the greatest band that no one's ever heard. They were awesome. You know, and you know, it's really great that you bring up the Dropbox thing and all that stuff. Cause I still believe that tape trading's going on, going on. Remember the old school tape trading back in the early eighties? Absolutely. Yes. I believe it's still going on. I think that people don't talk about it, but through the internet in a different way, but like to me, Dropboxes and all those things are files that's tape trading. And I, and I still love that stuff. I mean, I know everybody feels differently about, you know, tape trading and sharing files. And, and I understand where they're coming from. I'm a musician too. And, you know, we've been affected by that also. But the thing I like about it is still like, there are some obscure bands that there's no other way you could get, you know what I mean? Like I, I believe that tape trading still going on to this day through that kind of a thing. Well, what ended up happening was they were a three-piece, and they're still active today. One guy's playing in a band called The Sadies. The other guy puts out his own solo records on Constellation, which is Godspeed You Black Emperor's label. Okay. And then the third guy, he drummed in our band for a while, and then he is now a producer, and he's produced bands like Billy Talent and Three Days Grace. Wow. So They yeah. stayed involved in the music. Yeah, they're they're in it in in some sort of capacity, but um, the music they made together, I think, uh, was heads above everything from that whole era, '90s era, where they were mixing in like noise rock with you know Jesus Lizard and Birthday Party and all kinds scratch of scratch acid, scratch acid, you know, and and then country and western kind of influences mixed with this noise rock sound. Um, I thought they were one of the best bands of the 90s. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously I'm into hard-ass metal and, and obviously old-school punk and, you know, crossover and stuff like that, but my musical taste is pretty wild as well. So, you know, I just think if it's good, that's the main thing. If it's good stuff, it doesn't matter what it is as long as it, if it hits you, like, as a listener, as a fan of the music, if it hits you in the heart, that's all that matters with, with any style of music. Yeah, that's why when he threw out your name, I, like this is this is going back. Whenever that 7-inch was put out, I don't even remember, 95 or something? Somewhere around there. It's been a while, man. Like That's the only thing that's tougher as I get older, just trying to chronicalize and remember all that stuff from way back, like 80s <laughs> minimum, you know? And, and I've been in the music since I was 13, like, when I realized I was totally insane about music was at age 13. So there's a lot of years of music in between all that. So that's what I wanted to also ask you is from, from the time of uh, raging violence and then the, of uh, the phantasm uh, demo and stuff to, you know, new age of terror and the EPs before that, like, were you, were you just, you know, ordering and distributing records and just working in the the music industry from that end of it 
Yeah, I mean, I started out like a lot of kids in the 80s. I just started buying records at record stores. I mean, there was obviously this big giant chain back in the day called Tower Records. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was an amazing store and there were a few of them. So, you know, we would get on our bikes and ride to the record stores and, and ride home as fast as we could to go listen to those records. So that's kind of where it all started. And, and back in those days, you could buy a full length album from, you know, for like $3. Right. And I would save my lunch money. I wouldn't even, I, I was a weird kid. I still am a weird kid, but I would go to school and I would not even eat my lunch. I would save all my lunch money. And at the end of the week, I'd go buy a Ramones record or I'd buy a priest record or something like that, you know? That's amazing. So, yeah, I was, I just love music so much. I still do. Like my wife will tell you now that I still am that way about music. If I'm into it, I will do whatever it takes to go find the records. And even one of the, the pluses of being a musician is that we get to travel the world. So a lot of countries, like if I'm in Japan or Norway, I, I love going record store shopping. And I think you, you know, you know, you're like me, you know, of that store in, in Norway called no, Nosebleed. What city is that in? I think it's in Oslo. Uh, is it under the bridge? It's a, it's, it's a crazy store. I mean, I haven't been there in a long time, but I, like the reason I'm bringing that up is like guys like you and me will find those small record stores even if they're under a bridge yeah. and check them out, you know? Yeah, there's two. I, I know of two stores in Oslo, and they're very close to each other, and they're around the city center. Yeah. Um, the thing about buying records in Norway, which I realized early on touring in Europe, I bought a Neurosis album or a Neurosis CD, and then I did the conversion in my head. Yeah. And I go, I just spent 40 bucks on a CD? Yeah, it's insane. Uh, it, it, you know, it's same with Japan. Like I went into a store in Japan, uh, Rockstack Records, which is a brilliant store. It's still there. They're one of the few stores that's survived all this crazy stuff. But I went in there and, and like in probably two minutes, I'd already, you know, picked up $200 worth of stuff and I didn't even have that much stuff in my hands, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm like you, like when I'm into stuff, like one of my favorite bands that I collect is a Russian band called Aria and their stuff's hard to find. So whenever I'm on the road, I pick up their stuff and it's not cheap, but they're, you know, when you're, when you're addicted to a group, that's just what you do. Yeah, uh, have you visited um, the? Sh is there? Is it still around the Shinjuku area of Tokyo with all the bootlegs and all that stuff? Yeah, uh, last time we went through, we did like four shows in Japan. We got we were fortunate enough to go to a ton of stores, and that was still happening. Uh, and there were a couple of the. Do you you ever heard of a store called Disc Disc Haven or Disc? I think it's Disc Heaven in Japan. Yeah, there's a few of them. There's no, actually, no, I don't know any of the stores in Japan. I've visited Shinjuku area once. Yeah, those stores are phenomenal. Uh, it's like going into the most amazing like bookshop, but they're records. You know, they every they they have records by countries. You know, it's just unbelievable. It's almost too much to take in. We went to one store in Japan that was four levels, and each level was a different genre. So one level was hard rock, one was black metal, one was death metal, oh one God. was thrash. Oh and, uh, yeah, we, we basically lose our minds on the road. But that's, you know, when I'm on tour, that's where I kind of get to pick up stuff that I would never find any other way. Right, yeah. I, I mean, I could see that. I, I, I was a little overwhelmed when I went to Shinjuku, like I'd say that was 12 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but now I would think I haven't been back, but uh, I would think that, you know, the Internet had a lot to, to do with maybe wiping that 
that area away or, or at least substantially downsizing it. Yeah, it's not, you know, the internet, as much as it's a blessing in a way, it's also a curse, you know, like, um, but I think also at the same time is the music industry in whatever capacity it is, it always reboots itself and figures out a way to survive. Just like the bands will always do, you know, it's one thing that we've lost a lot of sales because of the, you know, illegal downloads, but a lot of bands have figured out that they just need to tour. Like for us, touring is really important. Um, but, you know, we also have to be able to create records. So there's got to be downtime where you come off the road and actually focus on these records. Cause I'm sure you're like me in that aspect too, that I'm still trying to, trying to make the fans more proud of what I do. I'm still trying to create some stuff that they'll be like, Hey, he didn't just, you know, just start putting out total shit records. You know, you still try to come up with the best material you can and you do need a little bit of time to do that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean immortal immortal legacy was amazing thank you that was uh, such a great album i mean uh, mean, you know the the toughest thing about making these records as you know you get further on in your career doing this stuff is that the labels sometimes forget that you need a little bit of time they they have dates that they want to get stuff released on and i i get that i mean I, i understand that part of the business but i still think it's awesome when you have time to really put the the love into these records and and try to make sure that you're happy with the material before you turn it in well yeah i mean um i i hope uh i hope you got the the, enough time for the next record uh i hope i hope we meet on the road i mean i can't that would be awesome we've not played a a show or a festival together in all these years i've been i've been wanting to to meet you for all these years and it's either you guys play that festival one year and we're playing it the next year. Or, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Or another. Well, I think uh, that's what's great about this now. You know, we have a. I think we we're, we're gonna move on and hopefully get to meet up very soon. And uh, you know, like don't don't get me wrong. I keep an eye on you as well. So that, that that's what it's about for me. I love music, man. So I'll be keeping an eye on your career and see what you got going on tour dates wise. And if you come through the U.S. and I, and I'm off the road, I'll come out and see your show. Oh, you know, I, I would love that. I don't know how I would perform that night if knowing you're in the crowd. I get all freaked out when that happens. <laughs> I, I I know the feeling, you know. But that's a good thing because like it always makes you play better shows. That that energy you just got to use it as a positive thing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, Kate, I, this has been amazing. I, I, I've, I've been um, not thinking about talking to you all day because if I started, I would have been just so nervous by the time we logged on together. But now that it's, I think this is it. And I'm, I'm so happy we were able to talk. Hey, it was my pleasure. Um, I'll be honest with you. My wife was on my ass about this. She's like, you know, this is a musician that you actually respect, so you make the time for this guy. So I gotta give credit to my wife. She's like, "You got, Thank you know, you. Right, right now is kind of a crazy time because you know, like back to this whole Lemmy thing. Even just getting this thing finished, I mean, the stuff that went into it, just like with even things I didn't think about that there was gonna be taxes and and uh, you know, getting these programs set up to where the fans could donate money and and have it make it to, to where it was easy because we had people donating from all over the world. So Speaking of conversion, you know, converting the money and but we, we we got this thing done. So now I can kind of focus back on my own career. But that that motorhead thing with the statue for Lemmy was a lot of time and effort. But I'm glad we did it, you know, so and hopefully 
Yeah. And hopefully you'll be able to get to come out and see this statue when it's up and standing at the rainbow. That would be great. Well, so, keep me keep me posted. Keep me in the loop. And uh, hey, continue success to you as well, my friend. Seriously. Thank you so much, Caden. This has been it's a, a thrill um, so much. I, hey, I the, can't tell you how much. This, the feeling's mutual. And keep doing what you're doing, and I'm going to do the same, all right? Okay. Thanks, Caden. Thank you for nice. your time. Nice talking to you, my friend. You take care and have a good day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.